Hey, so if you've got your Bibles and you're following along in your Bible apps, we'll be in John chapter 17 today. I'm going to kind of be on a stool because I don't have much energy this morning. Um, many of you have seen my Facebook posts and have offered up prayers or at least the comments that you're praying for me. And I hope if you leave a comment that you're praying for me, I actually did. Um, but thank you uh, for your concern. Uh, yeah, double ear infection, tonsillitis. Yeah, not fun. Right before spring break. Um, but I'm here. And I said, I figure I can power through, uh, you know, maybe a shorter sermon today. Um, I do want to start by uh, offering my condolences to any Purdue fans out there. Um, I'm not, I don't follow basketball, but I couldn't not see that that happened. So I'm sorry. IU fans, yeah, your time is probably coming, so enjoy it while it lasts, right? Um, the, I don't, I grew up in the South, so uh, being in the Midwest for the last, you know, over a decade really, having lived up in Illinois and now in Indiana, I just find, it's so hard to be a, a, in Big Ten country that's obsessed with basketball, like two of the things I could care least about. Um, but I'm happy for those of you who are rejoicing this weekend uh, with your team's successful run so far through the tournament. But I love seeing the, the upsets and the, the Cinderella stories every year that come out and the people just, oh, my bracket's busted. It's like, yeah, well, that's part of it, right? Um, so maybe some of you need that prayer today, right? Uh, I do apologize. I realized on the study notes, if you grabbed one this morning, I forgot to change the main text. So it's still from a couple weeks ago when it says uh, John 14 through 16. We are in John 17 today. And we are going to be looking at Jesus's last prayer as recorded in the book of John. But um, as I'm thinking about prayer, many of us... um, had to learn to pray at some point. Even Jesus' disciples came up to him at one point and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so he told, told them and taught them what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. But really what he gave them, I like to, I'm not always great about this. It's just easier to call it the Lord's Prayer because that's what everybody knows it as. But it's really the disciples' prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus gave for his disciples. If you want to read the Lord's Prayer, I think it's here in John 17. This is really Jesus pouring out his heart. But I think for many of us growing up, maybe we had a complicated relationship with prayer. Maybe we didn't know what prayer did or why we did it. Maybe we just gathered around the table and said a prayer as a family, not really thinking it through, not really knowing why we did it or even what to say. And those kinds of prayers bleed into um, popular culture every so often. And so we end up with things like this from... uh, Okay. Beer, eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus. Don't even know a word yet. Just a little infant, so cuddly, Mm. but still omnipotent. Mm. We just thank you for all the races I've won and $21.2 million dollars. Love that money that I have accrued over this past season. 
Also due to a binding endorsement contract that stipulates I mentioned Powerade at each grace, I just want to say that Powerade is delicious mm. and it, it cools you off on a hot summer day. And we look forward to Powerade's release of Mystic Mountain Blueberry. Mm. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. 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 All right. So, yeah, that was Talladega Nights. That's Ricky Bobby and his family saying grace around the table. Um, but maybe you're a 90s kid like me, and you think more along the lines of this one right here. This one's kind of quiet, so. Everybody say grace. Bless this, O Lord. Grace! All right, and then finally, taking us a little bit further back, maybe some of you uh, remember the Jimmy Stewart days, love me some Jimmy Stewart, from uh, Shenandoah, he offers this prayer. Lord, we cleared this land, we plowed it, sowed it, and harvested, we cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We work dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food we're about to eat. Amen. <laughs> we planted it. We did all the work. Worked ourselves to the bone. If it hadn't been enough for our effort, we wouldn't be eating it, but thank you anyway. <laughs> like, he's just saying what so many of us think anyway. Um, maybe these are bad examples of learning to pray. Uh, some of you may be familiar with this prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Do you realize there's more to the prayer than that, right? That's where so many of us stop with this serenity prayer that many of us know. But it goes on, uh, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as we would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Uh, that's commonly known as the serenity prayer coined by Reinhold Niebuhr, um, used a lot in uh, AA and Celebrate Recovery groups. Um, and yeah, it's a powerful prayer right? We all have to learn how to pray at some point. And I think one of the best ways that we learn how to pray is by listening in to the prayers of those who kind of have it figured out, right? Um, it, it can't just be like, here are the words you say. It has to be, here is the heart of prayer. Here's the position of prayer. Here is what it means to Offer yourself up and open yourself up to God completely and pour out your heart to him. That's why I'm so grateful for the book of Psalms that we have. If you're ever struggling with what to say or how to say it, yeah, reading through the book of Psalms can be a godsend. Um, and I guarantee you there's nothing said in, that, that you would want to say to God that hasn't already been said, whether it's anger or sadness or extreme joy, it's all there. 
So we get a glimpse into Jesus' prayer life. We're told all throughout the Gospels that Jesus would take time off to pray. He'd go off early in the morning, away from his disciples, away from the crowds, to spend time in prayer. And I truly believe that's the only way he could really do what he did in his ministry. It's his connection with God through the power of prayer. And here is one of the only times we get a, a true glimpse into what was on his heart as he's pouring out himself to God the Father on that night before he went to the cross. Um, so I'm going to read just straight through John 17, okay? Um, so follow along in your Bibles. This is from the Christian Standard Bible. Um, if you're in the Bible apps and you want to change that or in your own versions, whatever you have. So this is Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. <clears throat> Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you've given me is from you because I've given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. And I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that, you may, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except for the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you and so I speak these words, or sorry, I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I've given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm praying, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so they may also be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. 
I'm in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. That the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see the glory which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. It's a powerful prayer. In fact, um, N.T. Wright, the author and scholar, who I draw from a lot, uh, says this about the prayer. He says, in essence, the prayer draws together everything the gospel story has been up to, uh, uh, sorry, has been about up to this point. This one prayer brings together so many of the ideas and, and things that Jesus has been working on through the gospel of John. Throughout his ministry, he's been trying to protect his disciples and prepare them to carry on the work without him. To bring all of these different people together as one. I mean, think about the disciples that he has. <laughs> Just, I mean, it's good to remind ourselves every so often that Jesus called a bunch of blue-collar workers, some fishermen, right, um, whose job it is to slave away on the, on the Sea of Galilee, this big lake, tossing their nets and gathering up fish and then taking them to market. Um, he's also called people of a little bit higher society. He's also called tax gatherers like Matthew and zealots or guerrilla warriors, as we might think of them. Assassins, terrorists like Simon the Zealot. <laughs> he's bringing all these guys together and you, you see through the gospel accounts that they did not always get along. They had arguments, they had disagreements, but at the end of the day, Jesus taught them to love one another. And after he would leave, there they would be in the upper room together, or there would, there would be out in the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming the gospel together, sticking together just as he wanted. He took this group of misfits, this group of nobodies, and literally changed the world with them. So there's some things that stand out to me that I want to touch on. Uh, the question, like, what does Jesus want, right? Um, what does Jesus want? What is on his mind right before he goes to the cross? And there's way more I could get into than just these three points, but three simple enough to remember. And I think these are biggies. Number one, he wants us to know his glory. He wants us to know his glory. He is fully human and fully divine. They have known him as a person, right? They've camped with him. They've traveled with him. They've ate with him. They've lodged with him. They've sat around the campfire at night telling stories with him. They've been with him for all these years, knowing him just as a man, and now he says, I want them to know my glory, the glory that you have given me since the, before the beginning of time. And all of this reminds me of Daniel chapter 7, 
Um, well, sorry, before we get there, um, it is a throwback to John chapter 1. John opens his gospel with this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have observed his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory. We've seen it. So John, the writer, is saying, we've seen his glory. Well, okay, so Jesus wants us to see his glory, and John says, we've seen it. We have seen it. In his conversation with Nicodemus in in, uh, John chapter 3, Jesus says this. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Another way of thinking about being glorified. And this can be taken in a few different ways. So that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Glory and eternal life kind of go hand in hand. We'll get to that in just a moment. But he wanted us to know his glory. Not just as a man, but as the divine son of God. Fully human, fully divine in the person of Jesus. Since before the world began, and this takes us to Daniel chapter 7. I've mentioned this several times before throughout this study. But this is one of those passages that is critical from the Old Testament to understand what Jesus is doing as recorded in the Gospels. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel, living in Babylon, is given this vision. He sees all these imperial mascots, so to speak, come and go. They rise up and then they fall. They rise up and then they fall. And then finally, he says, suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that is God, the Father, the Creator, and was escorted before him. And he, this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Empires rise and fall. The kingdom of the Son of God is eternal and will last forever, and nothing will destroy that. The Babylonian Empire rose and fell. The Persian Empire rose and fell. The Greek Empire rose and fell. The Roman Empire rose and ultimately would fall as well. The British Empire rose and fell. And let's be honest, if we're tracking with this, the American Empire has risen and one day will fall. This will not last forever. But the kingdom of the Son of Man is eternal. That's the glory that Jesus wants us to know. The glory that we give our leaders and the prestige we bestow on celebrities is just a flash in the pan. The glory of the Son of Man is eternal. And John says, we've seen it. And that's the glory we want to tell you about. Next, he wants to give us eternal life. The, one of the oldest lies that Satan has is that God is holding out on you. We see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the, the serpent approached Eve and, and tempted her to eat that forbidden fruit. It's like, well, no, we're not supposed to eat it or touch it for we'll die. No, you're not going to die. God knows that when you eat it, you're going to become like him, knowing good and evil. In other words, God is holding out on you. 
God is keeping something away from you that you should have every right to have access to. That's the oldest lie in the book, literally. (laughs) So many of us think that eternal life is something we have to earn, something we have to work for, something that we have to fight and scrape by just to get into heaven by the skin of our teeth, as they used to say. God wants to give us eternal life. It's there. It's waiting for us. He says this, uh, since you've given him authority over all people, the son of man, Jesus, he's talking about himself, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you've given him. And this is eternal life, all right? He is not talking just about what happens after you die. That's the great, uh, amazing mystery about eternal life, especially in the Gospel of John, as John describes it. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I want those you have given me, he says, to be with me where I am. So it says both and. Eternal life is something, yes, that does await us in the future. But it is also a present reality that we get to live in right now. We get to know God. We get to know Christ Jesus. We get to know the power of the Spirit living in our lives. We get to know that abundant life that Jesus says that he came to bring. We get to know and experience that here on earth as well. But it's also that which awaits us, this resurrected life that is promised, that we get to be with Jesus where he is, where he's going. Jesus so many times told his disciples, where I'm going, you can't go, but you will follow later. Martha, John chapter 11, distraught at the death of her beloved brother, Lazarus, so Jesus says, do you, do you trust me? And she says, yes, I know. And it's all gonna be right in the end. We're all gonna be resurrected in the end. I get it. Okay, that's, that's our hope. But how does that help me now? To which Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection is not something that just awaits us in the future long after we're dead. Resurrected life, abundant life, eternal life is something he wants to give us Right now, he is not holding out on us. And then finally, and arguably I think one of the most important points, he wants all believers to be united. He wants all believers to be united. If you think back to the uh, lessons that we did on uh, through the book, I Am a Church Member, one of those lessons was I will be a unifying church member. I will strive to seek unity and not be divisive and not let my own preferences get in the way of of unity. And I will say, I mean, this is a hard one. This is a hard one. He wants us all to be united, but so many of us have in our minds those where we draw the line. And I think that is an important question. Where do you draw the line? But I think we draw that line much sooner (laughs) than Jesus would or than the earliest disciples would. And the first letter uh, of John, uh, 1 John, uh, he writes to the church, he says, nobody can say Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus says, I want them all to be one. 
Paul would write in Ephesians 4 to, to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Paul would write to the Romans, as far as it depends on you, live in harmony with everyone. <laughs> unity is such a big deal. He wants us all to be one. He prays over and over again things like this. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. Right? He says, I pray not only for these, not only for his disciples that are in his immediate uh, circle right there, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Do you realize what's going on here? Jesus is praying for us. I'll get back to that in just a moment. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. I'm in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. If we look around, are we completely one? You might look at this church and be like, yeah, we're pretty united, I think. And I, and I would agree with that. I think most of us in this room are gathered together with, the, with one heart and one mind, with one goal, one purpose. I get that. But look around at the broader Christian world. All believers, are we one? Are we united? Or are we letting petty differences drive us apart? Um, this is where I want to take a moment and plug a, a, a thing that's happening. <laughs> you may have heard about it. On April 7th, that's the Friday before Easter, um, we are having a community-wide Good Friday service. We had one last year up at the, um, and it's hosted by the Lawrence County Ministerial Alliance. Last year it was hosted at the Mission Valley Church in the Nazarene up by Judah. You pass it every time you go to Bloomington. And it ended up being standing room only. There were so many people there. It was amazing. This, this time around, uh, April 7th at 7 p.m., it's going to be at the Bedford First United Methodist Church. They have a beautiful sanctuary, and I hope that it is packed that night. It's not promoting any dogmatic or creedal differences. It's not promoting any denomination over one or the other. We are promoting... Christ and him crucified. We in the Ministerial Alliance, we've got you know, Christian Church, Baptist Church, uh, Methodist, United Methodist, Free Methodist, Independent Methodist. Like, there's a whole thing going on in the Methodist Church right now that we need to be sensitive towards as well. Um, we've got people from all sorts of denominations and non-denominations but we all unite, not because we agree on every single interpretation of the text, but we all agree that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that through displaying our unity, not uniformity, there's a difference, but displaying our unity, that despite our differences, despite our different traditions and backgrounds and heritages, that we can all unite around Christ and him crucified. I think goes a long way to show that we believe Jesus Christ is Lord. And that displaying unity in times like this through the Good Friday service or through the Vesper service that happens around the Persimmon Festival, that 
we can break down those denominational barriers for, for a time and just gather together around the things that matter most. And yes, there are things that matter more than others. <laughs> that the world may know that you sent me. That the world may know that you love them by uniting, by being one, by getting over some of our petty differences. We are showing the world that we truly believe what we say we believe and that Jesus' love is made complete in us. He wants us all to be united. That was the third point. <clears throat> this is what's commonly known as the high priestly prayer. And I don't have a whole lot of time to get into this, but if you look through the, especially the book of Hebrews, it lays out step by step how Jesus is our high priest. And this prayer that he offers is very reminiscent of prayers that would have been offered by the high priest of Israel for himself, to sanctify himself, to make himself holy. And then he prays for the rest of the priesthood. And then he prays for the rest of Israel, right? And so we see that same thing with Jesus. Prays for himself, prays for his disciples, and then prays for the rest of the believers. I'll leave it to you to do a little bit more study into how Jesus is our high priest because it's fascinating. There's tons of helpful videos and resources online if you're, if you're interested. But all of this does raise the question, does Jesus get what Jesus wants? <laughs> We've looked at what Jesus wants, some of the things that Jesus prayed for. The question is, does Jesus get what Jesus wants. Um, and it, it, it's a yes and no for me. <laughs> How God answers prayer is one of those things that I'm not qualified to really talk about. I'll be honest with you. Because it's so complicated. And everybody has their own understanding. I mean, we pray, we prayed and prayed and prayed desperately for, for John and for you, Kim. And I mean, God showed up in a big way. But we can't overlook the other times that we have prayed for somebody. And God seemed to say no or seemed to be absent. When Jesus prayed... And you also have to kind of compare this prayer to the prayers that are recorded in the other scriptures and the other gospel accounts like this in Luke 22. Um, when he's in the garden, he says he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and began to pray, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. But being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. If there's any way, if there's any other way, God, take this cup from me. Don't, don't make me do it, God. If there's any other way this can happen, apart from my going to the cross and enduring all of the suffering that's heading my way, God, Figure it out. But it's not about what I want, Jesus says, but it's, it's your will that needs to be done. I don't have all the answers as to why some prayers seem to get answered and some seem not to. 
And it can lead us to, to question why. If you've ever read through the book of Job, that's all about asking the question, why? Why, God? <laughs> why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my loved one? Why? And I don't have all the answers for that. But the silence from heaven is blaringly loud after Jesus prayed this prayer. In fact, skipping ahead just a little bit as he's hanging from the cross, he quotes another prayer from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me or abandoned me? I don't have all the answers to why. But it does make me think of a song, and I, don't want, I, I wanna play this video for you here, and then I'm, I'll wrap up a message uh, from a brilliant author, Tish Harrison Warren. So this is by a guy named Austin French. He performed last night at Winter Jam, didn't he? Did he sing the song, Why God? Do you remember? Okay, this is Austin French and his song, Why God? And I think it just speaks so strongly to the issue of prayer and, and the, some of these songs. Why God? Do people have to die? A daughter or a son Sudden and so young Long before their time Why, God Do people fall apart? A promise and a rain Becomes a broken thing a road that got too hard I don't understand But I understand Why God I need you It's why God I run to your arms Over and over again It's why
In her brilliant book, Prayer in the Night, Tish Harrison Warren, I highly recommend this. I even put a link, if you're following along in the Bible app under today's events, I put a link on Amazon if you're interested. Highly, highly recommend this book. In her book, Prayer in the Night, Tish Harrison Warren writes this. I'm just going to read a couple passages for you because she says it much more profoundly than I could. She says, In our deepest suffering, we do not simply want words to battle other words. We want things made right. Christians have always known the reality of pain. They've lived through wars and plagues, without vaccines or modern medicine. When death was ever at the door, when suffering was rampant and unavoidable, when nights were horrifyingly dark, yet millions of the faithful have long held stubbornly to this Antinomy, antinomy, this paradox, uh, that God is good and powerful and terrible things regularly happen in the world. The church has always known this paradox, but instead of resolving its tension, it has let it persist. We have left this chord humming in dissonance for thousands of years always believing that it will only be resolved when God himself sounds the final consonant note. My deepest question, where is God in all of this, is an ache that I hope to endure until my longing meets its end. I want justice. I want resurrection. I want wholeness, wellness, and restoration. And I won't be fully satisfied until God, before whose face our questions die away, sets everything right. But we are not there yet. We live in the meantime. And in this meantime, how can we endure such a mystery? How can we live as Christians in a world where children suffer, where marriages disintegrate, where injustice rages, where tyrants succeed, where we face frustration and futility, where we get sick and where we all eventually die? How do we trust a God who does not stop this all from happening? How do we dare ask him to keep watch. She goes on. The church has always proclaimed that if we want to see what God is like, we look at Jesus, a man, quote, acquainted with sorrow, no stranger to grief, a peasant craftsman who knew suffering big and small and died as a criminal, mostly alone. Mysteriously, God does not take away our vulnerability. He enters into it. Jesus left a place where there is no night 
to enter into our darkness. He met with blisters and indigestion, with fractured relationships and the death of friends, with an oppressive empire, the indignity of poverty and the terror of violence. One night he sweat blood, asking the father to spare him from agony, weeping, alone, weeping in the lonely darkness while his friends fell asleep. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And soon afterward, he was tortured to death. God did not keep bad things from happening to God himself. To look to Jesus is to know that our creator has felt pain, has known trouble, and is well acquainted with sorrow. But our hope in suffering is not merely to gaze on the biography of an ancient man frozen in the pages of the Bible. The story of God is, uh, story of the gospel is not a mere mantra or a relic of history. It is alive and ongoing. The work of Jesus continues even now in our everyday lives. So in hardship, we do not look to Jesus solely as one who has been there before, once upon a time in a distant past. We find he is here with us in the present tense. He participates in our suffering, even as mysteriously in our suffering, we participate in the fullness of Christ's life. I want to close with this. I'll invite the worship team back up. Hebrews chapter 4, I think, sums it all up perfectly. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold on fast to our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, we don't have a high priest who's like all holy and mighty and never had a hard day in his life. It's not like he can't relate to us. It's not like he can't empathize with us and feel our pain. He, he's been through it all. He says, we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus, like Tish Warren says, has not just been there, done that. He is here with us now, going through whatever it is you're going through now, knowing the pain of rejection, knowing the pain of sickness and sorrow, knowing the pain of a body that betrays you, knowing the pain of whatever it is you're going through. He can sympathize with you. And because of that, we can approach the throne and find grace and mercy in our time of need. If you're able and willing, let's stand together and let's worship with one last song. And as we sing this song, let's think about how we need Jesus and how nothing else in this world is gonna satisfy our need more than the presence of Christ in our life. And then we'll wrap up.